I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. Well, I am super excited about this interview we're about to launch into because it's been coming for a few weeks now, so I've had time to anticipate and get excited. So I'm going to introduce my guest, who is incredibly, well, kind of important, very important, interesting, and this is going to be a really interesting chat. So let me move on to that. The Reverend Frederick Davy joins me today. He's a Presbyterian minister and has been Executive Vice President of Union Theological Seminary in New York City since 2011. He came to Union from a background in philanthropy, having served as Interim Executive Director and Senior Director of the Social Justice and LGBT Programs at the Arcus Foundation. Fred serves as a member of New York Mayor Bill de Blasio's Clergy Advisory Council, where he's co-convener of the Public Safety Committee with a focus on community safety and improved police-community relations, which it will escape no one's notice that that is incredibly important now more than ever. He's also a mayoral representative to the Civilian Complaint Review Board, the CCRB, and was appointed acting chair of the CCRB in December 2017. The CCRB exercises civilian oversight of the New York City Police Department. Fred also served on President Barack Obama's transition team and was an appointee to the Obama White House Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. But it doesn't stop there. It gets better. In June 2020, so fairly recently, U.S. Senator Charles Schumer, Chuck Schumer as most of us know him, appointed Fred to the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. USCIRF. It's an independent, bipartisan U.S. government commission dedicated to defending the universal right to freedom of religion or belief abroad. They make policy recommendations to the president, the secretary of state, and Congress. Commissioners are appointed by the president and congressional leadership of both political parties. So yay for bipartisanship. So to sum it up, Fred is a faith leader, an LGBTQ leader, and a leader in the Black community in the U.S. It's a pleasure to have you here. Welcome, Fred. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's good to be here, Betsy. Well, so when I pitched this episode to you, I suggested that the focus it be on something like how to navigate competing discomfort, because you come from and are a leader in many very different communities, some of which clash on occasion or have conflicting identities or have a history of hmm, systemic injustice that makes them clash. So I'm really interested in the stories of how that has made you, of how you stand as a leader in all of those communities and how you manage to be graceful and diplomatic while also being fierce and effective or however it is you decide to be effective, whatever your style is. So I always start with the same question, which is, what's an uncomfortable moment that shaped who you are and what you stand for in the world? Sure. Thank you. And thanks again for, uh, for having me join you in this conversation. Um, when I think about it, I, I think about um, 1966 uh, in uh, Belmont, North Carolina, 
uh, I was 10 years old, uh, just completing the fourth grade, I think, going into the fifth grade. Uh, I had gone to uh, a predominantly black, in fact, all black school for the first four years of my life. And um, in that school, in the name of desegregation, racial desegregation in, in the southern part of the United States of America, um, decided that um, uh, the, the, in the name of desegregation, that school was closed. And I went from being in an all black school to being one of three black kids in my white class of 35. Um, and wow. it was if I had been ripped uh, from my mother's womb um, and cast into some strange and alien place and existence that I had to quickly as a little kid uh, make sense of. Um, and, uh, and that for, um, reasons I can only consider to be providential and the result of real support from my family, uh, in 1966, when schools were integrated in Belmont and black kids went to what were then white schools, it was simply assumed that we wouldn't do well. And I will tell you, I was absolutely terrified. I didn't know what that thing was that I was in. But the one thing I could do, uh, I realized, was learn. And I enjoyed learning. Uh, and by the third grading period, I was making straight A's at this white school. And it, uh, it sent shutters, actually, through the school and through the town. Um, and yeah, I mean, this, you just have to remember, this was 1966. Uh, we don't think anything about that now, but when schools were integrated, it was just simply assumed all the black kids would, wouldn't be able to succeed in these white schools and we were gonna fail. Um, and then there were teachers. Um, so I had a great teacher in my fifth grade class. Dixie Forbes was her name, appropriate for the South. Um, and she really encouraged <laughs> me uh, in, in my work. Uh, by sixth grade, I had a teacher who did not do that, who actually told me that little Negro children would not make it in her class and it would be nothing for her to come at my desk and snatch a paper off that I was working on and roll it up into a ball and throw it into the garbage can. And I was 11 by wow. then. So, and I'd go home crying to my mom and my mom would come to the school and, um, and, uh, and, you know, and there was the, all the, uh, drama and trauma of just trying to learn, but learn I did. Uh, and, um, um, you know, it continued off and on, uh, essentially until I, I, I'll, I'll tell you one other story that was just really fascinating me and the complications of personalities, right? So all these teachers were white, white women, mm -hmm. um, Dixie Forbes, great. Uh, Mrs. Helderman, not so great in the sixth grade. And then, um, by the time I got to the eighth grade, I was, uh, I was being tracked and I never will forget, uh, Mrs. Barnett um, came to me one day and she said, she called me Freddie. She said, Freddie, come with me to the principal's office. I'm thinking, oh my God, what have I done? I've gotten along pretty well with her. Why is she taking me to the principal's office? And she came to the principal's office and 
principal was Dalton Mann. And Mrs. Barnett said, Dalton, you, bo- you all are tracking this boy uh, in these uh, lower performing classes. It's an outrage. I want you to put him back into the advanced track and you put him back now. And no one had better not touch him again. And that's ex- that very day, wow. Dalton Mann reassigned me to the advanced track of study uh, at my middle school. And that set me off to continuing to do um, work, academic work that got me to where I am today. But, um, but t- talk about a place of discomfort. Um, and it was, and, and being a kid, and trying to make sense of all of that, it was, but there was a resiliency there. I think it comes from the fact that I had the support of my parents, support of my mother primarily. Uh, and um, and um, yeah, and it just, it made um, getting through that, uh, the support of my mother I obviously made all the difference, but also these these two women in particular, um, Dixie Forbes and and uh, I'm trying to remember Mrs. Barnett's first name, but Mrs. Barnett, they they both wow. um, just kind of made a difference in that regard. So these these people who were great teachers in a way, and also just great humans, that made me a little tight in the chest. Just thinking, mm. oh my gosh, to think that you know this is in such recent history. This is your life. That yeah. That simply because you were black <laughs> being in a yeah. school system, a public school system, you had to encounter that level of discomfort and discrimination as a child, you yeah. know, like sixth yeah. grade, eighth grade. That's, that's young. It makes you have to grow up fast, but I suppose yeah. that has given you a perspective that has clearly shaped who you are in the world. And yeah. how did that sort of, how has that driven your choices and your track to being in leadership, you know, because you could have gone off and been a, a businessman and focused on making money in private sector, but instead you've basically gone into service and focus on community and building bridges, but also calling out systemic issues. So yeah. how did that power you toward where you are now? Yeah, thank you. Well, I think, um, so Growing up, coming of age in the 60s, you know, there was a lot of turmoil um, and that um, that was a part of my context as well. And so in addition to, uh, you know, being this kid that was trying to make it academically, there were also the issues that spilled out into our community. Uh, I remember going to integrate the local park uh, amusement park at nine years old being uh, ushered out by, you know, a big burly cop, you know, and, uh, um, and, and then we had to have community conversations about what that meant and what desegregation was going to look like, uh, and what kinds of resources were being denied our community and how we addressed, how we addressed all that. And I was again, doing all this nine, 10, 11, 12 years old, and it continued into junior high school and high school. And so all I knew when I got ready to go to college was that I wanted to pursue a profession that allowed me to continue to make a difference in the lives of other people. Um, And I should also say, as people had made a difference in my life. So in addition to those teachers, I had mentors both in my family 
um, and others who, uh, because um, my parents divorced when I was really young, my dad sort of went his own way. Um, we had a lot of people who stepped up into our family to assist us and help us as well. So I just knew that I wanted to be able to, to, to do for other people what the, the good things that had been done for me, to help other people who found themselves mm. you know, at the margins of society and culture, uh, to be able to flourish and thrive. I had no idea what that would look like uh, when I went away to college. It took some experimenting to figure it out. But it was coming. It was being coming of age in that crucible of the '60s, and and engaging in those really tough conversations and actions to bring about fundamental change, as well as having the support of a community. When my own family structure, because of my dad, wasn't uh, exactly what it could have been or should have been, that led me to say, "All right, um, the thing that's going to give me." And I, even at 18, when I was going away to college, the thing that's going to give me the most uh, sense of completion and fulfillment is to be engaged in work that's really going to benefit marginalized people who are who've been historically marginalized by powers and systems. Mm. And can I ask, because obviously there's all of that background of growing up sure. black in the 60s in the American South and then also coming out. What was yes. that process like? What layers did that add to marginalized and and just, I guess, when you are in a position of being of several intersecting, uncomfortable identities, you kind of have no choice but to go forward with discomfort. Yeah. So well, what was that process if, like? Yeah, you have to decide if you're going to live or die, right? Mm. Or if you're going to live an atrophy. Uh, and I have a strong will to live, and I'm very appreciative of that. Again, I think it was a spark that was uh, ignited by my family, uh, encouraging me along the way and other people, uh, and again, particularly my mother. But um, so so a little bit about the coming out story. Um, there were lots of gay people in my little village, my little black village when I grew up in Belmont. Many of them were my mother's friends and they were out. Many of them were what we called in cross-dressing and they were mainly men. But as I could, yeah. have come to find out, there were a couple of women in the town that I just didn't know, but who were who were lesbian. I didn't know it at the time. Uh, but but these uh, these men and uh, I'll talk about them as men. These persons um, would had a very big presence in, in our community. Um, but um, I didn't that. They, and they were all friendly to me. They were all friendly to me. And as I said, they were friends of my mom. There's about six different people. One of them actually, even in the late 60s, right through the 70s, uh, until um, he died, had a living lover. I mean, it, the whole thing was just right there. Um, wow. But I, I couldn't find And how my... bohemian and advanced. <laughs> I know. In a, in a town that, ha in a, and everybody went to church. You know, I was Presbyterian. There was AME. African Methodist Episcopal, African Methodist Episcopal Zion, Baptist, and and many of these guys went to church or persons went to church, some of them cross-dressing when they went to church. Um, but they, and, you know, one, as you won't be surprised, was a musician and uh, occasionally uh, played the organ and the piano at various churches. But 
So, so it was all a part of the mix, except I could not identify with there. I just didn't know. I, I couldn't find my place there. Uh, I was a, I played football in junior high school. You know, I loved sports. Um, and I, I was just trying to figure it all out. So I went to college, didn't do a whole lot about it. Uh, had a, uh, you know, got a, had a deeper faith experience, decided to go to seminary um, at the encouragement of a mentor at, at my college. Um, I went to first to a Southern Presbyterian seminary uh, in uh, Richmond, Virginia. Couldn't, didn't quite feel at home there. When I went there in 1978, there were 354 students. And I think two of us was, two of us were African-American and one of, and, and that guy was away on, uh, on a middle of year. So I was there my first year by myself. Um, so I just, and I couldn't find a home there. And I think there were probably some people, a couple of my professors who knew that I had a lot of issues going on, even though I couldn't actually see them. So they he, I was encouraged, um, and wanted to go to Yale Divinity School. Best decision I ever made. Went up to Yale to the Divinity School there. And at Yale, there was just like every possible conceivable person that you could ever want to meet and a lot of out people, including at the Divinity School. I became the president of Yale Black Seminarians. And so we had a, a council of constituency organizations and I had a, I developed a real uh, deep relationship with uh, a guy who was the head of uh, what was called then the Gay Straight Alliance at Yale. Um, and uh, he remains a friend to this day. And I started talking to him and I thought, well, I'm getting closer to understanding this thing. Um, I graduated, came to New York. Um, I had a couple of relationships with women, uh, met a whole nother, ended up in a church with a variety, a whole diverse group of people, including a diverse group of gay people. Uh, and, and I, and, and then I could identify, then I could, I could find a home. I could find a place to give expression. You know, I'm a cisgender guy. Um, I love sort of guy stuff, but I'm gay, you know, I, I, and, and so yeah. I could be all of that. Uh, I was also ordained as a mm -hmm. Presbyterian minister. I was fortunate to be, I was ordained in my presbytery in North Carolina, but immediately transferred to the, the, the ordination in New York City. And in the New York City Presbytery, there were out gay clergy. And I thought, wow. So I was mm -hmm. really lucky in the sense that I came to New York. I was in this really diverse uh, uh, faith community uh, that uh, after some fits and starts on my part, uh, allowed me to give expression to my sexuality. Now it was hard. I, I mean, it was hard. I don't want to make it sound like it was easy because I had to wrestle, you know, here I am. I was grew up poor, black, deep chocolate. Uh, uh, and now, and now coming to grips with being gay. I'll tell you though, in seminary, one of the things that I discovered um, in reading a lot of people, but Paulo Freire, uh, the liberation th uh, theologians uh, and others, mm -hmm. is that many of the uh, identities that society places on us are simply constructs. 
for the sake of society being able to have power over, right? Um, and particularly if those are negative identities. So my, my goal was from inside out, with the help of my spiritual source, to dismantle those constructs in the ways in which they oppressed me. And it, took a, it has taken a lot of work to do that. I mean, years of spiritual direction and counseling and therapy. Uh, I had to give up alcohol to be able to do it because that just became a way to medicate, not, not dealing with sort of the pain of, uh, of the oppression that comes with, um, you know, these very being black and poor and gay, you know. Um, uh, and so I had to, I sort of, I had to deconstruct each of the sort of negative constructs that were associated with the identities and then step into my own in each of them, not denying any of them. It was, my, I was determined to do it. I was determined to give full expression in every context I was in to who I am. Uh, and believing as Psalm 139 says that I am fearfully and wonderfully made uh, and, and, and holding on to that. So, um, so, so that was the coming out that that was a process and it was but it was it, you know the it was i learned from what it meant to step into being black and owning my blackness what it then meant to step into being gay and owning what it means to be gay um and that is all a part of my personhood i you know i am one of those also very fortunate people who never heard a negative sermon about homosexuality when I was growing up. Now, I may have missed it. It may have been subtle, but there was nothing. My minister, who, be, who became a mentor, he never, ever had a negative word to say about gay people in the entire, I think he died when I was close to 50. So in the entire 50 years, or let's say I had 10 years of 40 years of consciousness with him, never, ever. And when he was, when he found out that I was gay, that I am gay, he, he got rest his soul, he's dead now, but he never, ever did anything but ex accept me. And that was the case for my, my parents and my relatives, all who were church people. I'm lucky because I know that is not the yeah, story for it's... many people who came through the church. In fact, it's just the opposite and continues to be so today. So. Yeah. So that's, that's, yeah. That, that's well, what a, a beautiful sort of... position of grace of people around you who are hearing who your mother's friends were and how you grew mm. up. And then that beautiful, supportive place of religion. I mean, because one of my questions was going to be about how do you reconcile being gay with the church, but you, you've never had to, it sounds like, whereas so many right. people who are listening and have maybe had to leave religion or still feel very scarred by it because it's, the identity they were taught that was acceptable is not who they can be in the world. So yeah, I, I, I basically am formerly religious for a lot of those reasons that it, it, it yeah, I was a straight jacket. It did not allow me to be who I am. So it's beautiful to speak to you and hear that story that it's never been a conflict for you. That's well, not never, yeah. but in terms of, no, not, no, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how do you reconcile that? Because being, an out black gay man in the world um 
that's pretty high profile. And there are people who probably have issues with a few of those things. So how do you bring collective liberation in the way that you were able to liberate yourself to be fully yourself in all of who you are? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, I am Scott Peck in The Road Less Traveled uh, has a line in the book, and it may be the first uh, statement in that book. He's just be honest. And so as hard as that is, and it's very difficult sometimes, it is just to, in any setting, I find myself now, or, or the, over the last 20 years, is just to be honest. Um, because to, to do anything otherwise is to give people a certain degree of power over you. Now, I believe I can be honest because there's a divine being that actually loves me at my core and supports and sustains me, that has nothing to do with the religious expression that we often see, particularly coming out of Christianity, but other faiths as well, that's hateful and discriminatory and dehumanizing, if not uh, actually, um, if actually not death, um, death inducing. Um, um, and I do think that religion and and all of all of the many rules and restriction and whose restrictions and who's in and who's out, who's worthy and who's not, um, it's just horrible and shouldn't exist. Um, and a lot of that religion has nothing to do uh, with, um, in my opinion, uh, the the very spiritual source that gives us life and and love. Um, and 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 that wants us to grow and thrive. It's a it's a it's a perversion uh, of that. Um, and I would say that anywhere um, and at any time and have. Um, and so um, and and so, but my faith being rooted in faith, I always sort of saw my faith as like a river, uh, a nourishing river. And as long as I stayed in that river and continued to open myself up to the nourishment of that river, the spirit, the nourishment of God, um, I was going to be okay. But occasionally I, I decided that the banks of the river looked a lot more attractive than the river itself. And so I would go hang out on the banks. And before I knew it, I was in trouble. I was kind of drying up. And the best thing I could do for myself was to get back in the midst of that river uh, bathe in its nourishment, try to stay in that river and, and, and let it, let the river feed me and carry me on my way. Uh, and, and, and that's what I've, you know, and so that's what I, I try to do in all these situations, you know, prayer, meditation in anything before I enter into it, just seeking some guidance and direction and being open. And it doesn't mean that there isn't pain and anxiety and all those things. It just means that they are not the end. You know, they just happen to be what they are. And um, and I keep, um, you know, I keep opening myself to the spirit and, 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 you know, in some ways letting it take me, take me where it, where it will. Uh, I'll just say one more thing. It's really important. It's become really important for me to show up, you know, uh, if I'm going to trust the spirit of the universe to guide and protect, to hold me, nourish me, love me, then I just I need to show up. Uh, and that's what I've tried to do. And I have the supportive and loving relationship of a, of a, of a husband now for 23 years this June. Um, 
and, um, and who encourages me to show up, uh, who encourages me in my gifts and ability, which I think is all a part of the, you know, sort of uh, the, the, the providence um, in terms of having people in your life who do uh, love and encourage you. Uh, but it's, it's just important to show up, um, even in the most, in the scariest of situations. Um, you know, you mentioned the, um, the U S commission on international religious freedom. I had no inkling that that was ever going to cross my desk. Not anything I planned for, not anything I'd really given a whole lot of thought about. And then when I got the call from Senator Schumer's staff, I'd been recommended by a former uh, commissioner, I thought, well, this is international religious freedom. I've done a lot of international travel at the Ford Foundation. Uh, I engaged a lot with uh, international communities, international faith communities uh, in other areas of my life I have, but it's not something I really focused on. Is this something I should do? You know, and after some prayer and consultation with uh, family and friends, you know, I decided it was time to step up, you know, and, and just sh show up and be there and learn and engage something new and 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 very different um so and and to do it as an openly and out gay man i'll tell you one what funny story in that regard um <laughs> when uh, when Oof, yeah no <laughs> when i was uh being uh, uh i'd done this work on the uh, obama campaign i got to know a young uh man who worked for president obama and uh i don't think he knew that I was gay. Um, and so uh, when the Obama won and we were in the midst of the transition, I did I did agency reviews and I looked at faith-based offices in the agencies and then uh, helped to formulate um, sort of what uh, President Obama's policy would be re relative to those agencies and then uh, work with this young man on the executive board and things like that. And and then one day we were um, sitting in uh, one of the offices there doing the transition. And that young man came in and said, uh, look, um, the president and uh, Ms. Obama, one, the president wants to do two things. He, one, he wants to invite you and your husband to join him and Mrs. Obama for uh, the early morning worship service uh, at St. John's Episcopal Church across from the White House before the inauguration and then be a part of the motorcade to the inauguration for for the service and, and i said okay yeah wow. you don't have to ask me twice and he said the president-elect wants to appoint you to the white house council on faith-based neighborhood partnerships and he wants to appoint you and make sure that the world knows that you're an out gay man i said absolutely i wouldn't have it any other way wow. so so this kind of being able to show up you know and you know people they not everybody's gonna like it or embrace you uh i've had Clearly, lots of, if not ugly things said to me, which has happened, uh, both for being black and being gay and then being black and gay and then being black and gay and a ordained minister. So I've had I've, I've heard it all. Um, um, but it's it's still in the in the midst of all that. It's just still important to step into it and to say, you know, that you're not going to let those things destroy your spirit that you've been put here, that I've been put here for a purpose. Uh, and I'm going to tap that river. I'm going to be open to that spirit. And I'm going to step into the space and do what I believe that uh, that God has called me to do. And uh, and um, so far, it's, you know, it's, 
it's it's working back to being fearfully and wonderfully made and embracing all aspects of that well that is is truly inspiring because it's so easy for people to get bogged down in the criticisms or the barriers and to focus on the barriers rather than the flow which it sounds like you mm-hmm. have always focused on i loved your metaphor about your faith being like a river and being nourishing and flowing and and i think anybody of any faith or no faith at all who's listening to this because i always end up interviewing people who are like buddhists or deeply spiritual in some way because often people who thrive in discomfort have quite a deep spiritual practice of some sort mm. but all of what you're saying it's it's universal it's connecting to source connecting to wisdom and really honoring yourself. And I like what you said about showing up. It's so important to just yeah. keep showing up. And then when those invitations arrive, you're ready for them. You just keep showing up. Yeah. You, you yeah. say next. and you, yeah. Okay, let's do this. But what incredible opportunities. And even in the most uncomfortable situations mm. as well, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because there's nothing comfortable necessarily about uh, even um, – I mean, you know, it's the opportunities sound great and they are and they have been, but they're not, you know, they're not necessarily, it's not like going on vacation, you know, you know, when you think about it. So it's, you know, you're being given a big platform from which people can take you down too, right? Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and, and will and have, and have tried and will continue to try or, you think about the enormity of the responsibility that you have, you know, to try to, um, to try to engage these very sort of powerful structures in society and culture to make a difference on behalf of other people. And in some degree yourself, you know, um, that is not, that is not your Sunday afternoon picnic. You know, that is real stuff and it's real, it's real issues. And, um, and so, but again, the key is not to shrink back. To just really believe that um, that you've been called for the time that you're in, and really step into that with all of its fear and anxiety, and um, you know, with fear and trembling, but to step in nonetheless, and then the trust that um, that the powers of the world who mean you good are going to see you through. Because mm. the the thing is, it would be easy to just. I'm so enjoying how you speak and your positivity, but the fact is, you are actually really tackling some big issues. You know, systemic racism, racism and policing. And I I've written down a quote that just struck me about your appointment by Mayor De Blasio, and you said, "As the nation, states, and cities continue to reckon with America's original sin of racism." And its devastating consequences over the centuries. I'm excited that the mayor is taking this unprecedented, unprecedented and historic step to look at systemic reforms and tangible reparations to address centuries of overt and implicit oppression and denial of opportunity. So let's talk about the discomfort of being in that position of who you are and the communities you represent being very much in kind of a I don't know what you'd say, a critical role or a very scrutinizing role of New York City police, who are obviously quite high profile, Black Lives Matter, police, well, I don't know what we're calling them, police murders of Black people have been absolutely front and center in people's minds and they're not going away anytime soon. So how how is that uncomfortable? How do you grapple with that? How do you show up to that? Yeah, yeah. 
You know, there are plenty of, so one piece of the discomfort around that is, you know, do you work inside the system or outside the system? Mm. And I clearly am choosing to work inside the system, right? Because, um, because I do believe that we need to do everything we can to reform policing in America. Uh, I think there are some fundamental police, fundamental aspects of policing uh, that are, are broken and have been broken for a long time, and we need to step up and try to address them. Um, now, one of those, or two of those, is transparency and accountability. Um, um, uh, and in the whole disciplinary process within policing, particularly in New York City. So New York City is, again, it's a very, we're very fortunate that we have, that started by the first black mayor of New York City, an all-civilian uh, oversight board of the NYPD with a staff of about um, 200 um, and a budget of, um, uh, I think we're slightly over $20 million. Now, put that all in the context that, and we have a board of 15 and I chair the board. Um, so you put that in the context though, of the fact that you have a police department in New York City that's got 36,000 officers and a budget of uh, somewhere between five and $6 billion, depending on the fiscal year. But that said, over the last couple of years, with the support of the advocates, uh, the city council, the mayor's office, uh, the, the state attorney general, the state legislature, uh, civilian oversight of police in New York City has been strengthened quite a bit. Uh, and so the, the goal is to ensure that there is accountability so that if officers do something they're not supposed to do, that they're held accountable for it, and then to make sure that there's transparency, that the public knows what's happening. So let me give you one, one case in particular. Um, former police officer Daniel Pantaleo uh, is responsible for the death of Eric Garner in Staten Island. Um, the district attorney in Staten Island failed to indict Officer Pantaleo. The Justice Department asked that our oversight agency hold back for four or five years before we took any steps in terms of what the, our agency could do to discipline Officer Pantaleo. The Justice Department then took a pass uh, and did, didn't do anything. So the Civilian Complaint Review Board, by virtue of the authority um, established in it by the charter of the city of New York and accompanying agreements, brought our own charges against Officer Pantaleo our prosecutors, the prosecutors of the Civilian Complaint Review Board, prosecuted uh, former Officer Pantaleo in a departmental trial for the death of Eric Garner in Staten Island. And we got a guilty verdict at the departmental trial. The agency recommended termination, and the judge agreed with us that Officer Pantaleo should be terminated. And then the police department, police commissioner confirmed that an officer Pantaleo was terminated. Um, but for this oversight agency, there would have been little to no justice for the Garner family in the death of Eric Garner. Mm. And that officer might have very easily walked away without any 
repercussions from uh, putting Eric Garner uh, in a chokehold that according to the uh, officials and experts uh, led to Eric Garner or contributed to Eric Garner's death. Um, we need more of that uh, and we're building mm -hmm. it out in New York City uh, and increasing the authority of this civilian agency to have oversight of the NYPD, uh, the uniform members of the NYPD, and we need more of it around the country. And I think you're seeing it mm -hmm. in different cities, efforts to establish civilian oversight um, uh, uh, of uh, law enforcement in various places around the country. Now, that said, that's the inside. There is still the need for the push from the outside, for the advocates and the peaceful protests. I don't think there's mm -hmm. much good that comes from burning stuff up or hurting and harming other people in protest. But the peaceful protests are really important. And it's important for departments, including our own in, in New York City. Very disturbing to see what happened during some of the peaceful protests in, in New York City. The police commissioner himself has said that they probably made some mistakes. I would say they, not probably, but they did make mistakes. Um, and, uh, but for peace, we need the peaceful protests to continue to hold before those of us in authority and the public. Uh, the abuses that take place when it comes to some of the interactions between officers and, and the public. And we need to get ourselves out of this rut of this hostility that exists between mm -hmm. communities and the police who are sworn to protect them. And that's my goal as chair of this agency, to hold folks accountable, to have transparency, uh, and also to work toward uh, improving the relationship between uh, the police and the community. And one big way to do that is to reform how we do policing. It can't just be yeah. about uh, you know, uh, uh, enforcement. Uh, it has to be more about relational engagement with communities. And we have fallen into a form of policing that we simply accept it as the way it has to be. But that's a choice. It mm. doesn't have to be this way. It's going to take a long time. I may not be here to see it, but I at least want to be a part of planning the seeds about a radical police reform that's more relational than power over, um, and uh, and and trying to improve, trying to improve those relationships. Mm. I think that whole term of abolish the police was a very unfortunate naming because it's more about reforming the institution and recognizing that policing is useful. It's just how it's carried out and what's at the basis of it. So it's going to the roots of the Indeed. things that have allowed racist behaviors to be propagated through systems that are very powerful, mm -hmm. right? I have a question about yeah. Yeah. potential response from the black community to that, because it sounds great, but I can imagine there have been some uncomfortable moments when people say, well, that's all well and good to be on the inside and have this vision, this grand vision, but on the ground, we're still encountering racism, you know, when, when we walk down the right. street as a group or whatever. So yeah. what yeah. is some of the tension of, of being part of all of those communities been for you? What's been the discomfort there? Yeah. Yeah. I know it's complicated because 
you know, um, as a part of the Supreme Complaint Review Board's responsibilities, we, we hold public uh, hearings, public conversations about policing in New York. And, you know, you have to, in these positions, live with people who say you're uh, compromised by the fact that you relate to the police department, uh, you're a part of the problem, your agency's weak, it has no teeth, um, uh, etc. cetera. Um, but on the other hand, you hear people saying, well, we're, we're glad there's some oversight, we need to just work with the agency to improve it, to make it stronger, to make it better, to find as many ways as um, possible to hold uh, the department, the police department accountable. And we're gonna work with you to do that. And there are people in communities who, uh, communities of high crime, people of color, who want to be able to call 911 and know that officers will show up. But, so, but we wanna make sure that officers show up and respond in a way that's proportionate to the situation at hand at the time and not a disproportionate response. And we've seen these instances where the response has seemed at least, and in fact, we've proven it in our cases that have come before our agency that in, 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 in perhaps more instances than anybody would want, the response has been disproportionate to the particular issue for which the officers were called. Um, you know, the situation with uh, Dante Wright just last week in uh, Minnesota, you know, he had dangling um, air fresheners on his rearview mirror, which was the occasion for him to be pulled over. Um, why do we pull, pull, pull people over for dangling air fresheners, um, you know, that then leads to someone's death? Why do we need uh, you know, is that, I think that's what people see as over-policing. During the era of COVID, yeah. you saw the case of the lieutenant, black military lieutenant in Virginia. Um, he supposedly had temporary plates on his car. Well, I drove around forever with temporary plates on my, uh, on my newly purchased, it wasn't a new Jeep, but my newly purchased Jeep <laughs> because... I couldn't get the DMV because of COVID to change it. Why, why would you need to pull someone over? And his plates weren't even expired. They were just temporary. Um, I would put my money on um, that it was who was driving and the fact that it was a brand new car that this man got pulled over. And then the officers wouldn't listen to him, you know? Um, and you know, pepper spray and up they, with their guns drawn, they could have killed them. Uh, so it's that yeah. level that, of policing and it's that culture that we need to really fundamentally question. Um, are we over-policing minority communities? Are we pulling people over, engaging folks for things in other neighborhoods and communities they would never be engaged around? And for things like traffic violations, do we need armed officers for that level of engagement? Um, so yeah. I think we really need to look at fundamental uh, police reform in America. I'm not an abolish. I'm not a defund guy. 
I am, though, for radical reform and looking at ways that mm -hmm. we can make um, policing less harsh, less potentially lethal, and more relational, more about being a part of what makes communities better, not a force that communities have to fear. I totally agree. What's interesting is I, I think from experience and from being someone who does try to bring about reform from the inside myself, whether that's a government or a corporate, it's way easier to be criticized as somebody who's trying to be in the system but not of it and not go native than it is to just be mm -hmm. outside criticizing it, maybe trying to do something or outside criticizing it and not doing anything. So I like I applaud where you sit on this because it's a difficult place yeah. to be, but I'm glad you're in there. So yeah, well, thank you. And I, okay. I was just going to say I strongly encourage the advocates, mm. um, the people who keep all of us honest. Um, I and I and we, the agency has really intentional outreach to the advocates, even those who are strongly criticizing the work, because it's we we believe it's important. Uh, where I draw the line uh, is when um, the protests become violent. There's simply no excuse for that. Uh, and it's not in the Kingian and Ghanaian tra tradition that that where I stand. But I want to strongly encourage those people on the outside to keep pushing. Just do it in a, a mm -hmm. constructive and responsible way. Yeah, I talk a lot about in my work as an activist, a campaigner, a leader, whatever, about the ecosystem that in which we exist and that every every one of those roles has a place in the ecosystem. But don't punch your allies. Remember that there are people mm -hmm. you're passing the baton along to inside or outside and that we all have a role to play. But yeah, this the violent protest, it's sort of just think about karma. You get what you sow, you mm -hmm. reap what you sow. And if you want to protest violence, mm -hmm. don't do it. They're being violent. Like you don't teach children to be peaceful by right. beating them. So, right. yeah. Okay. Thank you, Fred. Yeah. I want to move us on to a question that makes me uncomfortable, which as someone okay. from Wyoming, which is potentially the whitest place in America, uh, from an evangelical <laughs> mm -hmm. Christian background, you have mm -hmm. been very honest in calling out white American evangelicalism, in particular for becoming associated mm -hmm. with white American nationalism. And we've really seen the ugly mm -hmm. face of this emerge during the last administration. So I guess I want to call it out because I want I want to make people uncomfortable, even though, you know, we now have President Biden and maybe some people want to think, oh, we've turned a corner. We're back to the good old days. The good old days. What we saw during those very dark for some of us four years is mm -hmm. what's always been there and and sort of what's mm -hmm. always been there with white evangelical American Christianity mm -hmm. for quite a long time now. So what is the discomfort that people need to sit with about that? What do we need to do about it? And what harm has it actually done? Right. Well, it's idolatrous to conflate um, white nationalism, white evangelicalism, any kind of uh, faith with nationalism. It's, let me say it another way. <laughs> um, religion should always serve as a critique of of nationalist goals and aims, uh, not as um, an excuse and a justifier of it. Um, and I think that, that 
uh, in many people's mind to be Christian is to be American and to be American is to be Christian. And that is not what either is about. It's not what the most of the founding found then they were fathers. So most of the founding fathers basically were, I mean, most of them were deists. Um, they, and they set up and, and, you know, we, the, the people who came to these shores were running from political, I mean, religious persecution primarily. So the idea was to set up a state that was not uh, a theocracy uh, that really tried to work at, at, at uh, religious freedom uh, for everybody or no religion if people wanted that. Um, now, uh, now there were plenty of flaws in how the nation was set up. You know, my folks were three fifths of a person and, and then enslaved and, you know, and, um, the indigenous people on these shores were basically experienced some degree of genocide and, you know, shunted to reservations and then mocked, um, and as has happened to other populations as well. But when it comes to religion, I think it was pretty clear there'd be no establishment of. But somewhere along the line, it became you couldn't be a faithful Christian if you weren't a faithful American. And that's idolatry. That's harmful. Mm. Uh, that is not helpful. And you add to that now this kind of present day circumstance that has, I think, um, many sectors of the white community in America terrified. And that is that we are very close to becoming majority minority nation. Where, where no racial ethnic group is in the majority, uh, but we're all, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're all sort of represented as minority populations with America, including white Americans. And that terrifies people. Uh, and you have people like Tucker, Tucker Carlson and others who are now, you know, who are actually giving voice to this whole notion of the replacement that, that you know, uh, that Jewish folks and others in America, people on the left, are intentionally bringing in uh, uh, people from Central and South America and other racial minorities who will, quote, replace white people and be more, um, what's their word, uh, pliable when it, comes to, uh, when it comes to doing what the left wants. It's bizarre. It's crazy. It's absolutely ridiculous. And it's harmful. And it's simply not true. Yeah but they're doing it. And the reason they get an audience, I think the reason that Trump, President, former President Trump got 75 million votes or whatever it was, 74, is because people are scared. They, I think white Americans, vast majority of them, of them are simply scared of what is irreversible. You can oppress mm -hmm. if you can try through some type of minority rule by trying to restrict votes, 43 states in America now with voting restrictions, trying yeah. to keep minority and other folks, minority folks and other people from voting. Um, uh, or, you know, you can try to burn the house down uh, so that you don't leave anything mm -hmm. behind because your tribe is suddenly going to be no longer totally in control. Uh, thus the attack on the Capitol and all the lies about the election and all of that. You know, yeah. our job as people yeah. of faith should be to call people to a beloved community. 
You know, let's do this thing a different way. Let's engage with the discomfort mm -hmm. of trying to live in harmony with, the, with each other, mutuality and respect, working on an environment mm -hmm. that's rapidly uh, becoming uh, uninhabitable uh, and putting at risk everybody. So let, you know, let's join forces in those things that are going to destroy us all at, at, at human, as humans. And let's get away from this notion that, you know, some race of people that has been just kind of arbitrarily defined is somehow superior to any other. It takes too much energy for that. I mean, just think about all the time yeah. and money that it takes to reinforce superiority. Just, just look at what's going on in the country now. Look at what happened in South Africa. Look at the entire apparatus that had to be in place. That's what I was thinking. Look how hateful yeah. and evil it was just to reinforce the notion of superiority and separation. Look at what we did on these shores in terms of Jim Crow laws and continue to do. And I would say that um, using religion, it takes a lot of energy, a lot of resources and um, to try to reinforce notions of superiority uh, and supremacy. Uh, and including using using religion to do it. So I would say let's let's if if we really want to make a go of this thing, then it behooves all of us, particularly religious leaders, uh, to step up and say there is sort of a universality uh, uh, of humanity, uh, and there are inalienable rights that we all uh, have a right to. So let's help make that happen, and let's. Let's join hands to address those things that threaten the fundamental humanity of everybody on this earth, mm -hmm. and, and not the least of which is the environment, which is rapidly uh, becoming a place that's not going to be uh, very friendly to any of us if we, if we don't address it. So, um, and, and if anything, uh, the U.S. should lead the way in that. We have the resources we have the experience, we have the people, uh, and, and we shouldn't allow ourselves to be sidetracked by this, by this fear that gets exacerbated mm -hmm. by a minority of the people in the country and the world around the, the notion that um, people of white European descent are somehow going to be displaced. It's not about that. Mm -hmm. It's about a human family. Uh, and we all need to step up and join hands and try to make this place better for everybody. And it's not a zero-sum game. There's plenty here yeah. for all of us. I was talking to a friend this morning who, she's here in Barcelona and she's from Alabama. And we were talking about just, I've checked out of the news about mass shootings because they're just so the norm now. And she was talking about like, why is it always young white men? Why is it usually you know, 90% of the time young white men? And it just kind of drew out the point of there's anger, there's disruption, but it all actually stems from when you oppress one people group, historically, it creates this toxic environment where these young men have grown up in a culture where they believe that they're superior and they believe that that's slipping away from them, whether they're conscious of it or not. And they feel angry and disempowered. And also being in that position of superiority is a lot of pressure because then you have to maintain this yeah. togetherness and this, you have to maintain power. And then when you see that slipping, there's fear and anger and lack of agency. And then, and also as men, you know, there's, there's this culture where, there isn't mm -hmm. an ability to talk about emotions or deal with masculinity. And it all just becomes this mm -hmm. toxic cocktail. Mm -hmm. That means yeah. they go out and are violent to people 
and probably not even understanding where that comes from. And it all just, it's all bad for all of us. And you brought up, you know, impact on the environment and how just everything's connected. And we've had these systems of repression based on this completely made up idea that somehow people are inferior or superior based on how much melanin they have in their skin. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I had some students at Union, white students, um, one from the one from Texas and one from the Midwest who came to me and asked if we would support a conference on um, on white despair and particularly white with a particularly look at white male despair. Uh, and then these students, both of them white, uh, talking to me, you know, they talked a lot about um, just what you just said, that it it's a heavy burden uh, to be um, a, a white man who's supposed to be the superior to everybody else, particularly when you don't feel that. And then what's the option is to start to blame and lash out. Um, and rather than have a conversation about the fallacy of the very premise of male, white male superiority. Um, there are people who are simply reinforcing that the reason you don't quote, feel like a man is because somebody else is taking your manhood away. That's a, that's a horrible way to have to build a life. That's a terrible way to try to find meaning, you know? And, um, and at least to all types of despair, and be and awful behaviors, including these mass shootings um, that are done uh, primarily by men uh, and overwhelmingly primarily white men, and in most cases young white men. Now, now having said that, the U.S. also has a huge problems with this love of guns, which I think is sort of also related to this collective toxic notion of what it means to be male. Uh, and the mm -hmm. guns are sim simply a compensation for perhaps some inadequacies that people feel in other ways, but we we won't get yeah. into that. <laughs> no, I'm from Wyoming. I would like somebody there to listen to this someday and not send me hate mail. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. I get it. It's it's a proxy for power. It's yeah, yeah, and it's actually yeah, it's a proxy for power. That's exactly right. And it's a shame that this nation won't do more to just, if we just ridded ourselves mm. of assault weapons, you know, we would go a long way in addressing this issue. We have no other nation no. in the world comes close to mass shootings, comes even remotely close. I saw a stat the other day, we have 4.4% of the world's people, 4.4% of the world's people. And we have 42% of the world's firearms that are in civilian hands. Now, can you imagine? Almost half of all supplier firearms in civilian hands in the world are with 4% of the people in the world and all 4% of those people are right here in the United States of America. That is nuts. And, it, and we see the destruction over and over and over and over again. And this love of guns that I'm convinced is rooted in this toxic notion mm. of masculinity is literally killing us and our Congress yeah. won't do anything about it. When those four, when those 20 plus babies were killed in Newtown, Connecticut, and the Congress would not pass one measure of gun control, white babies killed 
in that town, just slaughtered in their school. And I said, if this country won't do it for them, it's not going to do it for anybody. That's sick. And we need to have a reckoning. We need to call it out for what it is. There should be no mincing of words. We've got a toxic mm. problem that I think is primarily rooted in masculinity and this false notion mm. of security. Um, and we need to address I, it. Just, just I, because I moved out of the U.S. Um, 18 years ago now, and what strikes me when I very occasionally dip in because I don't come back very often is just how much more armed everyone is, but also how much more tense and angry people are. And it's genuinely mm -hmm. scary to drive down the freeway in a city now because mm -hmm. I know most people are probably armed and you have to watch how you drive accordingly. But, and also mm -hmm. just seeing, you know, it's sort of, again, being from cowboy country, you see people wearing their sidearms to Starbucks or whatever. And it's, it's glorified. Like my parents have a security yeah, guard at yeah, church yeah, to make sure nobody yeah. comes in and shoots them. Yeah. So there's a guy, yeah, at the back of the sanctuary with yeah. a gun. They have oh, a security detail. Yeah. And and it's just that that is yeah. how they've chosen to live rather yeah. than calling for not having to live like that is crazy to me because I don't know when this will actually be addressed, yeah. Yeah. if ever. But yeah. 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 Yeah, no, it's it's a it's it's a very difficult thing that we've gotten ourselves into, um, but I think we do have to keep calling it out in hopes that one day, you know, there'll be some kind of realization of transformation. It's going to be really hard. Uh, these culture changes and culture shifts, you know, they really are like trying to turn the ti Titanic on a dime. But you know, a part of what's meaning making is to and apropos of this conversation, is to never run from the discomfort that that causes. In fact, that is sort of vocational, right? Mm -hmm. uh, to, to always be willing to step into these spaces, to go where angels fear to tread, you know? And in my tradition, be able to say, out of the prophetic tradition of the Hebrew scriptures, thus saith the Lord. Um, you know, this is not the way humans are intended to live. Uh, and we do have an obligation to each other uh, to, to, to do this a different way, to pursue that beloved community. Mm. Uh, that's meaning making. And uh, it'd be nice if we could get more of us uh, traveling um, on that road as opposed to some of the others. It remains to be seen which direction we go. I like to think people will be so fatigued by the culture wars and the danger of just going to the movies that they'll think this is crazy. I don't want to live like this, but a lot of people just don't, you kind of, you don't know any different after a while. It's just the normal that you live with yeah. and coming from somewhere else where it is so different. It, it's so apparent, but I live in hope mm -hmm. that the U S with its beautiful yes. influence with its amazing resource and, and it's inspirational history. People still look to the U S as this, incredible place that they aspire to be to move to to learn from i just i really hope that it does pull itself together because it's really hard to yeah, watch and true. it's a little bit scary because there is so much global influence yeah yeah i, I join you and just hope that folks won't give mm. up on the experiment uh, i think it's worthy of our the goals of this nation and other democracies around the world are worthy of our support and input. And I just hope people won't give up on it. I think that's a beautiful ending call to action. And I couldn't say it better. Don't give up. Keep hope. Do what you can. Thank you so much for your time, Fred. It has been a Indeed. fascinating conversation. And I'm so blessed and humbled that you took the time to talk to me today. Thank you.
Well, well, thank you, and I appreciate your interest, and I want to thank Kevin Wood for bringing we us We love together. that, Kevin so Wood. He's our friend, and he always recommends interesting people. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks, Kevin. Shout out to you. Thank you to my team who helped me produce this podcast, to my brilliant editor, Dimitar Svedkov, to Thomas Sheffer for the original music, and to Luis Amaro for the original artwork. If you enjoy this podcast, you can help me reach new listeners by leaving me a five-star and written review on Apple Podcasts, following me on Spotify, or anywhere else you love to listen to podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram at TheBetsyRead. That's B-E-T-S-Y-R-E-E-D. If you're interested in bonus episodes and guided meditations I record regularly, head over to patreon.com and become a supporter. For the price of a coffee each month, you get access to a community. So there's really only one thing left to say. Thank you for spending time with me. Stay uncomfortable. <laughs>